0: We're in the era of AGI, what would that mean? What would that look like?
1: Look, there's a lot of stuff where people are not thinking very clearly about issues about AI ethics. There are certainly things that could happen that are just features of nature that could have all kinds of terrible consequences for us.
0: A fascinating individual, Stephen Wolfram. He's a computer scientist, mathematician, theoretical physicist.
1: The author of A New Kind of Science and head of Wolfram Research.
0: He's always been kind of an iconoclastic individual and decided that what the world needed was a new way of doing
1: mathematics on computers. That's the big story, is what questions should we ask, not let's figure out the mechanics of how to do them because that's what the AIs can do. How do I insert my sort of specialness?
0: How far is that if we're talking about AGI? It's... uh... What are the steps that happened to go from high school in 16, graduating then to PhD by the age of 20?
1: Yeah, I mean, okay. So, you know, filling in a bit more, you know, I grew up in England. I went to fancy schools in England. I I went to a school called Eton, which is kind of a, that's old. It's like 450 years old or something. And uh, it's, um, you know, the, the kind of scholarship crowd at Eton, which is like, 70 people at any given time broken across five years or something. It's a pretty, you know, uh, small group of people, very interesting group of people. So I've met lots of interesting people there. Um, But it's kind of a very, you know, it would be incorrect to sort of say, oh, I was, you know, a totally random kid at a totally random school. Not really. Um, And uh, I didn't really realize that at the time, but anyway, it's, um, uh, and so. But most of what I did in, I was really interested by that point, by the time I was in high school in England, one goes to high school at age between 12 and 13. Um, So it's, it's um, uh, at that point, I was really interested in physics and I was kind of had my sort of separate strand of studying physics independent of things I was doing in school. And, you know, I like, I wrote up these big kind of book length things about physics. Which actually I didn't show to anybody for probably thirty years, mm. um, and uh, the um, but that was kind of my and I would say that one of the things that was good, even though I was at you know boarding school that was sort of fancy school, I don't think I was anything like as busy as typical modern American high school students are. So I got a chance to spend a bunch of my time doing you know physics research and so on. Mm. And and that's what I did. And and by the time I was, uh, well, when I was 14, I guess, there, was, there were a bunch of discoveries made about particle physics, which really energized the field. And I got really interested in those things and started saying, well, let me see if I can figure out stuff that other people haven't been able to figure out, because it was a time of great kind of change when there was a lot where people didn't know what was going on. And it's like, you know, I don't care that I'm 14. I can figure some of this stuff out. Let me see what I can do, and I did manage to figure out a few things. I think the very first paper I wrote wasn't particularly good, but uh, they got better, so to speak. And um, uh, you know, I I I used to well, I started going to sort of theoretical physics seminars for grown-ups, so to speak, in in Oxford, which wasn't too far away from where I was in school, and um, that was that had a funny consequence because i was like 14 15 years old or something it was a little unusual to have the 15 year old kid show up to the you know physics seminars with a bunch of middle aged professors and graduate students and so on and i think the even more unusual thing was that the the 15 year old kid would actually you know stick up his hand and ask questions type thing and and sometimes i was uh, i think i was um uh the questions were often quite pointed because i could figure out you know a lot of stuff about what people were talking about and it was like why are you saying that that doesn't seem right and that wow. that led to the kind of unexpected consequence that because physics is a very international community kind of i got quickly got kind of a reputation and uh i was sort of people thought as what a brash kid and you know from age 15 or something and yeah. then there i am at age you know 40 or whatever and it's kind of like oh yeah we remember that brash kid <laughs> so it's one of these things where where you don't always uh, it's not always an advantage to be out particularly in these more international arenas when you're when you're young and haven't decided that you're going to be less brash or whatever else but but the um i mean what what happened when i was so i started writing physics papers and so on and then i i went um i Use this kind of loophole to kind of apply to Oxford, and uh, you know
0: what was the loophole? Got, what's that? What well, the the, the
1: thing was was if you got a if you got a scholarship, then you didn't have to do the A level exams, which was kind of like two years later or something. And so I that that cut off two years from from my kind of high school uh, time spent in high school, so to speak. And then you know then I I. Um, uh, actually the way that the English system works and so on, there's kind of this potential gap between high school and college. And I used that potential gap to work for a government lab in England called Rutherford lab, which is a particle physics lab doing, doing physics research. And that was, uh, that was fun and interesting. And, uh, you know, my, my colleagues there were all kind of, uh, sort of the middle-aged physics folk. Um, and, uh, you know, I wrote a couple of papers while I was there and, and things like this. And then I went to Oxford. And um, uh, again, was kind of a a setup rather different from the American setup, where you, you don't have to go to, I don't know if this is still true, but at least in those days, it was true. You didn't have to go to classes. All you had to do was at the end of the year, you had to do these exams. And kind of the classes were just intended to sort of uh, if you wanted to go to the classes, you'd go to the classes, but all you actually had to do was the exams at the end of the year. Yeah. So I, you know, I tried the first few days going to various classes, and it's like, look, I, you know, this isn't that exciting and I know this stuff and I don't really need to go to these. So I'm just gonna go off and do physics research. And uh that that was that worked fine. And um I managed to there was an experimental physics group that had access to fancy computers. And so I kind of made this deal to help them with some experimental data analysis in return for having access to their fancy computers. So that was a that was a good thing. Also in England, uh, you know, back in those days, at least. Uh, however w- hot the weather was, there was no air conditioning anywhere except in rooms that had computers in them. So that was uh, that was. A <laughs> that was what got you
0: in. Uh, yeah, right. That's the but, real reason, um, right?
1: <laughs> but but um, then, you know, then I I you know I, I I think I did do the exams at the end of the first year. Those are the last exams I've ever done in my life, and i I uh, huge achievement. I managed to come top in the university, but which was not really a big achievement because I was kind of a professional physicist by that point. and it's kind of like if That's I couldn't so have wild. done the the um uh, you know the first year physics exams, that would be embarrassing type thing. Um, but it was it was, I suppose good that, in a sense, the Exams were decoupled from classes because, you know, it was kind of, oh, can you get the right answer to this physics question? Well, yes, I can get the right answer. Can I get the right answer using the methods that they will have taught in an elementary class? Probably not, because I probably don't even know those methods. Mm. It's kind of like I know the I know a way to get the answer using sort of fancy techniques, but I have no idea whether that's the what got taught in an elementary class. But then I went, um, uh, that summer I went to work at an American government lab, Argonne National Lab near Chicago and doing physics research again. And then I by that point I was you know kind of yes I'm gonna go to graduate school somewhere and so I I started talking to people about going to graduate school and I would say I had three target places. there was Princeton, Harvard, and Caltech and um, both, Princeton and Caltech said, oh, yeah, if you don't have a college degree, not really a problem. And Harvard said, no, 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 you've got to have a college degree. And then there subsequently, Harvard tried several times to hire me as a professor, but that didn't- Afterwards? Years, a number of years later. But, sure. but it was, um, uh, so I've I've never worked there, perhaps, perhaps I, I don't know whether to my detriment or not. But um, uh, it was, um, so then I, uh, I ended up, I actually partly went to Caltech because I think the they made me a slightly better offer, and I'd never visited there, and I had visited Princeton, so I figured, you know, go to a place where you learn more type thing because I'd never been there before. Mm. So, uh, so I, you know, so I went to Caltech, and when I was, I guess, um, well, just just after I turned eighteen-ish, yeah, but no, but but bit later than that. But and then once I was there, I'd, I'd already written a lot of physics papers, and so it was kind of I was. Actually quite on a roll because I was like I was gotten pretty capable of you know doing physics research. Plus I had an important secret weapon, which is that I had realized that one could use computers to do physics and one could do mm. all kinds of fancy things with computers that I was sort of surprised other people weren't doing. but uh, I had the fun of, of doing them. And I think my peak productivity, I was producing a, a sort of published physics paper every couple of weeks. That lasted for for um, a sort of half a year or something, and um, and then uh, I kind of put together a bunch of those papers and called it a PhD thesis. Actually, I I I had every opportunity to be able to say I got my PhD when I was still a teenager, but at the time I didn't care about that at all, and so I made absolutely zero effort to be (laughs) able to you know be able to sort of uh, make that claim so to speak. But I was considering. I mean, I, I guess Caltech was wanted to hire me and a place in, in Switzerland, CERN, the European Particle Physics Center, uh, wanted to hire me. And I, I briefly, in a sort of moment of indecision, was like, well, maybe I could somehow work part-time in Los Angeles and part-time in Geneva, Switzerland. And it's like after a few plane flights back and forth. Ooh, those flights like, are oh, not pretty. Not going to work. No. Not work. Even Plus, LA to but...
0: New York. I mean, come on. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. So- so yeah. i i um decided to stay at caltech uh partly because my I'm sure my knowledge of French would have improved rapidly if I'd been living in Geneva but um it wasn't uh uh, uh that wasn't um uh that was a, another uh deciding factor so to speak so, yeah. so you know, that, that's so that's the answer to how i uh, i mean really uh, it was that I'd gotten to the point of doing physics research and by the time you're doing that, kind of the system is such that, or at least I, I think it probably still is, such that, you know, the goal of kind of going through graduate school and, you know, getting a PhD is that you do research and you learn how to do research. And I kind of already knew how to do research. And so that was, uh, you know, that, that made the whole thing shorter. Um, and it was just as well, because I think my level of patience for, you know, like, Doing sort of the official classes and all that kind of thing was definitely not very high, um, mm. and I, you know, I managed to. I really didn't do after I left high school. I really didn't do any very sort of organized classes ever again, and um, that's uh, uh, and I think that was. Um, uh, but but you know it it was yeah the, the, I I um, so that's that. Um, that's that's how that happened. It wasn't um, at the time. I was just like, I want to do physics research. I want to go shortest path to do physics research that's possible, and that was the shortest path. Now then, you know, I got my PhD in November of 1979, and literally two weeks later, I was like, I was actually visiting uh, CERN in Switzerland, and um, I'm like, okay, let me make a plan. You know, so now I, I sort of had this goal from when I was probably 11 or 12 years old of I want to be a physics professor, basically. And so then age 20, I kind of got to that point, and it's kind of like, okay, what next? Mm. And uh, I kind of, one of the things that happened was I used a bunch of these computer tools and so on, and I'd sort of outgrown the tools that had already been built. And so back in probably late November 1979, I was like, okay, you know, I've outgrown these tools. I need these tools. How am I going to get these tools? Well, answer, if I can't persuade the people who've written these tools before, which I tried to do, actually, to sort of write a new version of them, it's like, if you can't get other people to do it, well, then eventually you have to do it yourself. And so I kind of started then building my first big software system in uh, right at that time, actually. Uh, and that was... Uh, Kind of that was, was interesting because it was a very different kind of activity. I mean, I had been doing physics research, producing papers, things like this. And then this was essentially a build-a-big software system and uh, uh, organize the other people who were working on it, um, kind of architect the system, design the system. Very different activity from physics. And physics is kind of like the universe. It throws you it as it is, and your job is to figure out how it works. When you build a software system, for example, it's like completely blank slate. It's just like start from nothing and build what you think is useful. And so yeah. it's a rather different activity. And it was, uh, uh, so it was an interesting thing for me to do that.
0: And um, it's also a very different skill set, right? I mean, when you're building a company, you know, I know it seems like you had a very specific problem that you wanted to solve in pursuit after you've succeeded getting a PhD. But was business in general something that was a calling for you of interest in any way? Or do you think if no. these physic tools were updated that you would never have gotten into business and you would still be perhaps a professor right now? And that would oh, be yeah. your main thing. Yeah, I'd probably thing. still
1: be a professor. Might even be, still be a professor at Caltech. Who knows? The, interesting. I mean, I mean the, the, uh, uh, thank goodness that didn't work out that way. That would have been yeah. a less interesting life. I mean, I think the—I'm um, not sure. I don't know how suitable I ever was for being an academic. I think I'm a bit too uh, kind of entrepreneurial. I've got an objective. Let me go try and get to that objective. Academia mm. is not quite like that. Academia yeah. is a more kind of, um, you know, let's just go through the process type thing uh, to a greater extent. No, I—I I, I mean, when I first started building my first software system. I certainly was not unaware of the fact that, you know, one has to have a a sort of a, a way of distributing the software and all this kind of thing. And it it's like, uh, uh, but it was a couple of years into it when we had the first version built and so on. It's like, okay, what am I going to do with this? Did you and, build the uh, first
0: version yourself though?
1: I built it with a bunch of other people. I mean, it was, I, was, I was architecting it and running it, but there were a whole bunch of people involved. And that was, yeah. uh, there were people who were, Sort of students at the university, some faculty members, some other people. Um, I mean, it was that was, uh, but it was, and that was, for various reasons. There were various sort of grants and things that were available to uh, to pay some of these people and so on. So I didn't have to on day zero, didn't need to have a company. Then mm. in, in back in those days, this is 1981. This is before you know, before open source software, before all these kinds of ideas. But kind of, you know, one model is you just make academic software and give it away. That clearly wasn't going to work because there was just too much sort of uh, practical effort that was needed in making the software work, maintaining it, supporting people who were using it and so on. And so I was like, okay, you know, so I have to have a a plan B. And I was originally kind of hoping that the university would kind of uh, help me set up some kind of corporate structure for doing this, but they were just hopeless at that. And eventually I said, why are you so hopeless? And the guy who was in charge of it said, look, we never get to do this, you know, faculty members just go off and start their own companies. So I'm like, okay, can I do that? And then, you know, eventually produced this letter that said, yes, you can go do that. And Mm. so I started doing that. And um, and later on the university kind of freaked out about it, but that's a different story.
0: Um, But um, what happened there? Did they want equity in the company after
1: um not exactly I mean again, these things were this was an earlier time, and um it was it was a very complicated story that had to do with a large donor who had uh, allowed another major innovation which was much more relevant to that person's company to kind of uh, had not paid attention to that and it had been spun off a company had been spun off for that and then the university administration which had its own crazy problems was like oh my gosh we've got to sort of prove that we're doing something and sort of lasso in other intellectual property and we were really the only other intellectual property of interest that was happening at that time and so it became a big mess the end result of which was kind of interesting was that you know i kind of um uh, eventually it was it was clear the university didn't have a really a leg to stand on from a kind of structural legal point of view. And eventually they're like, okay, fine, we'll just license whatever we have to the company for a dollar or something. But then, hmm. the, uh, then it was like, but but wait a minute, but you're a faculty member and that creates a conflict of interest. And I'm like, okay, that's really easy to solve. I quit. Bye. <laughs> and uh, and uh, which was kind of a weird thing because I remember going over to the sort of their administration building and yeah. saying, okay, I'm quitting. And they're like, "How much notice do I have to give?" And they said, "We don't know. It's never happened like this before." So that right. you know, a faculty member person just in the middle of a semester just says, "I quit." And um, so I, I was. Uh, that was. Were you not long. nervous
0: though? Like the company at that state, I don't know how far you guys were along with Wolfram, but well, that knowing was, that it
1: was, was not Wolfram Research. It was a. It was an earlier company. So right. Wolfram Research, I didn't start until 1986. Um, Got it. And so this was this was 1981. And uh, no, I mean, it, it, it's it's one of these things where I had spun up this company. I had sort of the incorrect self-image that I was a kind of academic kid and didn't know how to run a company. And so I brought in people who were not hopelessly incompetent, but they were not, didn't have kind of quite the same vision that I had of sort of what the company should do. And um, uh you know i've i've seen plenty of hopelessly incompetent business people these were not of that type yeah um, the uh um you know so i was initially okay you guys are running this company it got very frustrating for me because i kept on being like my common sense says we should do x and they were like no 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 we should do the exact opposite and it kept on turning out that i was right what's and, an example <laughs> Well, let's see, what was an example? Here's a, here's a funny example. So it's a software company, right? But at the time, the, the, our software couldn't run on, could only run on pretty expensive computers. And it was just a little hair's breadth away from being able to run on cheaper computers, but it couldn't quite do it. The computers that existed weren't quite powerful enough. So the bright idea was, let's build our own computer so that we can run the software. And it's like, let's not build our own computer. Building a computer is a different problem from building software and it's expensive. And, you know, other people are doing this. I already knew company what turned into Sun Microsystems. I'd already seen their prototype and so on. I already knew there were other people doing this. It's like, we're a software company. Let's not try and do something we don't need to do. We can just wait a few months for other people to do this. We'll never even get this finished. In the time available, and it's just the wrong thing for us to do. That was one example. I remember there was another one was um about our sales team, which was um kind of, you know, plan A was let's hire a bunch of salespeople who will be distributed around the country and they'll sell our products. In those days, that was a thing. You know, there was actual you had to go visit the customer. There's no Zoom or anything like that at the in those days. And um uh and so the problem was, those people were all kind of semi-technical, and our product was really very technical. And so they would never really be able to close a sale. They would always, uh, and, but they were, um, and um, you know, it was always in the end, somebody from LA, from the sort of main office would have to fly out to actually you know, do the technical dog and pony thing. And it wasn't, you know, and, and these semi-technical people weren't that good at selling either. I mean, there was one guy in Texas with you know big hat and everything, who knew <laughs> nothing real technically, yeah. who was who was a really good salesperson, who outsold everybody else because he just would do the selling part, and you know when it came to the more technical sales engineering, what would now be called sales engineering part, somebody would you know have to come out from LA, and that was an own thing, but it was much better to have if you were going to have regional salespeople to have people who were really just salespeople, not people who kind of could sort of talk about the product, but it was kind of like uh, they couldn't really talk about it and so on. I, I suppose for me, that was sort of a bit of common sense that that was not going to work. Mm. And, you know, it was an example. I mean, there were there were a bunch of these things, but I think um, uh, it, uh, you know, so that was a bit frustrating. And then then there was a whole complicated squiggle with uh, you know, we were getting investors and and I was like, I'm not going to do this. This is your job. You know, I brought you guys in to run this company and, um, and it ended up, I ended up getting a bunch of the investors, which kind of, I didn't was not, was not thrilled about. Um, yeah, and, uh, so, but I mean, and, and in fact, the, uh, uh, uh so then, uh, you know, I was, I was spending only part of my time on the company and, um. Uh, which was probably the right thing. And I went yeah. to work at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. I had sort of gone around shopping for a university to go work at, and, and that was one where it had the amusing feature that uh, sort of, I guess, the first kind of academic computer ever was developed there in the um, in the 1940s when John von Neumann, who developed that computer, died. The people there who... Um, were like, we just wanna get this computer away from here. We don't want anything to do with computers. And they sort of gave it away actually, they gave it to IBM. Um, And uh, so when I was like, okay, you know, I'm happy to come and do basic research here. I, you know, I also do technology stuff and I'm not prepared to work in a, you know, academic setting where that place owns the technological stuff I do. So you have to kind of say, you're not gonna own that stuff. And so I remember the guy who who ran the institute at that time. Actually, the guy who was the chairman of their board, saying, "Look, we gave away the computer. After we've done that, you know, any other sort of claim about intellectual property completely pales in comparison. So we don't care about that." Right. Um, which was kind of kind of nice.
0: But, so uh, that transition for you from being a PhD student studying physics into going into business—I mean, that's a steep learning curve. Like, did you? read any books around specific business people that you admired or was most of it just common sense for in your mind and using yeah. first principles thinking to think about what is the most logical way without really having any frameworks or mentors to refer yeah. to
1: well you know i have to say i i was i mean while i was doing that i was also still a you know physics person so i was um yeah, I remember when I was first starting the company, I was like, okay, let me go look at some books about management. Okay, I look at these books. They were really stupid. I mean, in those days, you know, I'm sure they've gotten better, but I remember one of them was yeah. like had this whole diagram about the manager should have a desk that's several inches higher off the
0: ground than no people. Way. Yeah, for real. So this is like management for dummies.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, this was look. I, maybe maybe the selection of management books uh, available in the Caltech library around 1980 or something was uh, was was uh, uh, you know uh, I, I'm sure they've they've changed a lot over the years. Right. But this was at a time when I think there was this kind of notion of when it came to sort of business management, there had been this kind of whole idea of the professional manager that I think had originated in the 1930s, 1940s and so on. And I think that was what that was catering to. And it was very different from what we see today as kind of tech management, which is yeah. just a, a different different kind of a, a approach. And it was, um, uh, I think for me, the, the sort of, in retrospect, the surprise is that a lot of the things that were involved in kind of like running a business, managing people and so on were... Sort of seemed like common sense to me. They seemed pretty easy compared to things that I could kind of knew how to do analytically in science and so on. I have, for for decades probably, I always just assumed they were common sense, and you know anybody would be able to do this. Mm. Um, turns out, probably, you know what for me seems easy is not quite as easy for some other people, and. You know, that's a funny thing always because always the things that seem easy to one are the things whose value one kind of minimizes, so to speak. And so, Mm. you know, because it comes so easy
0: and effortless for you.
1: It's just, you know, but there's only one principle really for me, which is just sort of keep the thinking apparatus engaged, whatever you're doing. Which, Mm. you know, I saw lots of people who were kind of technical, academic type people who would say, I'm going to go into business now. And, Whatever I knew about kind of analytical thinking, up nope, that's out the window. You know, now I'm going to do something different. But really, I think the only thing for me, the only kind of uh, secret source or something was just keep the thinking apparatus engaged. And yes, there are issues about, you know, oh, should we do this? Should we do that? Well, you can kind of think it through and it all kind of, it all fits together. I suppose another thing for me is that, I suppose I became a... I don't know, arrogant, confident enough science person or whatever else, that I always had the point of view that that which I don't understand, I don't believe. And it's kind of like, explain it to me. You know, Mm. okay, we're doing some complicated financial thing. Explain it to me. I'm not going to take the, oh, just trust me. You know, I'm an expert. Uh, You know, this is how it works. It was, you know, I kind of had the image from partly from doing science. That look, I can understand this stuff, and if I can't understand it, I don't believe it, and that that really helped in terms of uh, uh, sort of uh, you know getting into these different different kinds of things. I mean, for me, one other feature probably helped in terms of the company thing, which was that I find people interesting. I mean, not everybody who does techie kinds of stuff finds people interesting. Hmm. Uh, I do, and yeah. you know, I've I've uh, and I've been. You know, you asked about uh, uh, sort of what would people from elementary school say about me, and you know the fact that I sort of stayed in touch with people I knew in elementary school is kind of a, a reflection of the fact that yeah, I find people interesting, and and it's um, uh, I've uh, that for me is a is an important part of life, so to speak, as um, uh sort of people and so on, and I think that was probably I mean when I when I first started. Running projects, company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Definitely, you know, there were there were times when I definitely made mistakes when I hadn't done particular things, when I hadn't dealt with particular kinds of people before. Um, But uh, uh, you know, I found it interesting to do, and I gradually sort of learned. I mean, I suppose the thing that's always amazing about dealing with people and managing people and so on is that you know? You would think after I've been doing this for, I don't know, whatever it is, 45 years or something, um, you would think every crazy thing that could have happened, I will have seen it by now. But no, mm. there's always another one. And it's always, it's kind of like, it's an eye roll. And it's like, oh my gosh, I've never seen anybody do that before. Right. And, um, uh, you know, but at least at this point, I'm, you know, I find the people interesting. So it's like, if it's somebody who does something very crazy and weird and, But you know they're talented. I'm like, okay, let me try and work through this and figure out how to put this back on track or whatever else. And it doesn't. I I might just get very cynical and say I don't want to deal with this. But but because I like people basically and find people interesting, um, that that's something that I'm prepared to do.
0: Yeah. When I analyzed kind of your career path and. If I think about the reason why you may have been extraordinary successful, I'm sure you would have always been very successful. But people often talk about, I read this from Scott Adams' book, where he talks about the kind of two ways to be extraordinary. The first is to be the top 0.1% of the world in your field. That could be the LeBron James of the world, whether it's basketball, the Messi for football, Warren Buffett for investing, or you can combine two or three of these skills that Maybe you're not the 0.1% at, but combined together, you have this extraordinary competitive advantage that very few people can replicate. And this skill set that you develop around people, your interest in people, your communication skills, the fact that you're really great with at managing people and your technical background from physics and science and, and building software, like that combined seems to be the superpower that allowed you to build Wolfram to to what it would be? Is that something that like you've like actively thought about or, or do you think it's yeah, just- Yeah, I mean,
1: look, I, I, I'm always interested in what it is that I'm good at because that's a good guide to what projects I should do and what projects I shouldn't do. It's also right. a, a way of understanding more about people I'm working with and people who complement what I'm good at and so on. I mean, look, my main, you know, in the end, I think my main skills are mostly sort of clear thinking on, sort of strategy and clear thinking where it's kind of like you take a big pile of complicated stuff and you grind it down and figure out what the essential point is. And then you build it up and do competent sort of organizational structure or engineering or whatever, or writing or whatever it is to turn that essence of understanding into something other people relate to, so to speak. And that's mm. that's kind of what I've done. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. 10 times or something in my life in different kinds of ways in science and technology and so on. It's kind of take this big complicated thing that looks dauntingly hard and figure out how, what is the essence of it? What Mm. is the thing from which you can, that you can sort of build from and then build this, this big structure on top of that thing. I think that's my main skill if I have one. And uh, you know, I think that the, the things like organizational skills and, you know, running companies and so on, I'm competent at that. It's, uh, in some ways, it is to my detriment that I'm competent enough at that, that I don't, you know, desperately need, you know, the business partner who's going to save me from from being, uh, you know, totally stupid in, uh, uh, in business kinds of things. But on the yeah. other hand, I would have been happy to have such a person if they could have kind of uh, taken, you know, I, the fact that I do things like running companies, it's fine. It's I find it fairly easy. It's yeah. not my big uh, kind of. That's not the thing that I really get excited about. What I get excited about is being able to do stuff, being able to make products, do science, those kinds of things. The company is a is a tool for getting those things to happen. It's a tool that takes sort of a machine that takes you know ideas I have, and kind of combined with ideas other people in the organization have and so on, and kind of turns them into real things. And that's a very, yeah. you know, it's a it's a very satisfying uh, kind of setup in a way because it's kind of like, it's a great extension. You know, I could just be sitting by myself kind of inventing things and then there's a small, you know, there's a small thing that I can build or I can invest the effort in building this organization and then have that organization be able to provide you know, greatly, in, great enhancement and leverage in the things that I can achieve. And that, that's kind of, I think, the main, main thing. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, if you ask about different kinds of things I do, you know, there, there are things I do like uh, language design, computational language design. Yeah, there really isn't a lot of competition in that because other people just haven't, nobody else has identified that as an important thing to do. And, you know, when it comes to things about fundamental science, again, a bunch of the things I've done are things where mostly, you know, I have no quotes competition because nobody else identified that as a thing that was worth doing. Mm. Now, you know, what, you know, there are different strategies people can adopt. You can be in an area where everybody knows it's important, but there are lots of people in that area and you're kind of scrambling to be, uh, you know, a top person, so to speak in that area. Or plan B, which has been most of my plan, do things that absolutely nobody cares about, where it's kind of like nobody knew that was a thing. Then you do it. And then once it becomes interesting, then you've got to tell the world this is a thing. And then if you're lucky, the world will say, hey, that's really cool. I mean, to me, it's kind of like, can I create, I like to call them alien artifacts, Mm. things where... Once it exists, you say, oh, wow, that's a thing. You know, I understand what that is. But before it exists, nobody imagines it could exist, so to speak. And yeah. that's, the, um, that, that's kind of, for me, that's the exciting thing, I suppose. For me, I much prefer that situation to the situation of you're kind of the person who's running faster in the big pack, so to speak, partly because I feel more unique. I feel like it's, you know, I'm... If I'm spending my life doing something, it's like I'm spending it more usefully if I'm doing things that just wouldn't happen if I wasn't doing them, rather than, you know, if I didn't do it, some other person would do it three months later type thing. Hmm. And, you know, I think that that's, and, and also I'm very much kind of like to do things where I really feel this is the right thing to do. This is the direction one should go in. And often I end up doing things where that direction, I, it turns out I'm right. It was the right direction to go in, but you know it's decades away from the world really, in general, recognizing. Oh yeah, yeah, that was the right thing to do, and um, so you know it, it's a little bit of a funny situation because a lot of stuff I've done is kind of like I can see it's kind of things are heading in that direction. And it's all going that direction, and in fifty years, everybody will say that was obvious. Yeah, but it's going to be fifty years from now. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a um, that's a thing that's sort of a, 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 you know, for some people that would be, I would say it, it's more fun if you get to see the thing come to fruition in your lifetime and so on. It's, uh, it's, I, I think it's also one of the things that's kind of nice in terms of the, the, the sort of the, the trajectory of one's life is I know plenty of people who did cool things when they were 20 years old and then it's like, how am I going to do another cool thing? And they're, you know, fifty years old, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, what do I do next? You know, I, I try, got to do something bigger than, well, you know, for me, it's kind of like there's, there's, there's always things, you know, the future is still out there, so to speak. It's always kind of there's, there's things to achieve at any given moment, and it's been, it's been exciting for me that a lot of things that I've kind of initiated, I don't know, forty years ago or more, they've, they've been coming to fruition in recent years, yeah. actually. And that's, um, it's very, it's very satisfying. It makes one feel, uh, honestly, makes me feel more confident about the things where I say, this is going to come to fruition in 50 years. It's like with something where I said, this is going to come to fruition sometime. And that was 40 years ago. And now it's coming to fruition. It's kind of like, I don't feel as as goofy saying, I think I know what's, you know, what, what the future looks like. And that's yeah. a, um, I mean, and, and for me, you know, this whole thing about, you know, doing different projects and so on, One of the other traps that people have is that it's like, well, I always need to do a bigger project than I've done before. But one of the things that's been interesting for me is that I've done a bunch of projects that are fairly big, and I have no idea what the biggest of those projects is. You know, that will be, you know, there's no no real way to compare them. And certainly, you know, at best, one will be able to compare them long in the future, so to speak. And that, for me, is helpful because it's kind of like, I'm going to do another project. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know if this project is going to be. You know, I don't really care if it's my biggest ever project. It's just a project that I think is interesting to do, and I think it's it's big enough to be worthwhile for me to do it. But I'm not. I'm not kind of in this trap where I have to always be seeking the 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 you know the bigger hill, so to speak.
0: I'm going to go back a little bit about when we talked about having a difficult time finding a business person, let's say, to work with because of the fact that you find business and management to be fairly effortless. And now that you have the the confidence of knowing what something is going to be likely to happen, I wonder if it's ever like a detriment for you or has that ever been a a factor where it's kind of ironic because you talked about being able to be managing people well, but do you ever find it difficult to have a co-founder where... Oftentimes people want to find someone that's a complimentary skill, right? So a technical person would often go with, let's say a business person, but if you're in a situation where you can do both, you probably don't lean towards needing to have someone. So do you often find that because of that, you like to be the, the sole founder and Maybe well, a difficult I mean, times. I've so only much. done.
1: Look, the main company I've done in my life is one company, Wolfram Research, which I've been running for 36 years. So I don't have a mm. huge, huge database of of experience there. My first company um, was kind of one which had co-founders, so to speak. Um, I think in you know, if I had found a person whose sort of core desire was to make the business side of the business great that would have been terrific you know it unfortunately as a company like ours progresses i've got lots of great people working at the company but it's a complicated company at this point so it's kind of not not one of these things where it's like oh i've you know i'm a business person i can just wheel in and and uh, and be helpful here yeah it, it's you know and, and we've done a number of spin-offs and things and which i've been involved in and they've had sort of their own separate ceos and and such like with, with mixed success, but I don't think, you know, one one thing that often happens is that, you know, as as you say, if you have very complementary roles, that's a reasonable co-founder kind of setup. Uh, I didn't need a co-founder, and it is a lot simpler to be the one decision maker, so to speak. If you don't need two people there or three people there or whatever, it's a lot easier. You know, what I see all the time is people say, we're gonna start a company together. We're great friends right now. We're gonna do this thing. And yeah, for five years, or if the company is successful enough, everybody stays more or less aligned. But as, as time goes on, there's a sort of a slow divergence, which eventually gets bigger and bigger. And then there's some you know complicated situation that happens, and maybe somebody just leaves and, and the other people go on fine, or maybe it gets more complicated than that. But I found that, you know that's just what I've observed, I think for myself, it's a lot easier for me to I mean, for me personally, I find it a little easier to just make the decision, move on, make the decision. And, you know, I'm not really a committee decision kind of person. You know, it's kind of like there are people where it's like, oh my gosh, do I really have to make this decision? I'm very nervous about making this decision. That's not my situation. I mean, I I'm, you know, how do you make I'm, decisions? Uh, quickly, usually, and usually I'm, I'm, you know, it's like, do I understand this? Do I know enough? Can I, you know, can I see what the, what's, what, do I understand deeply enough? If I understand what's going on to the, enough to the bedrock, so to speak, then I feel very confident. I just, okay, we're going to do this. And, um, you know, the main thing, which I think is a useful skill, which I certainly have learnt from science and so on, is know when you don't know. That is, you know, there are times when it's like, should we do this? Should we do that? Look, I just don't know enough to be able to tell. And let's go, you know, if we really need to figure it out, if I'm the one who needs to figure it out, let's keep drilling until I know enough to actually be able to tell. Uh, and don't just, uh, and sometimes I'm like, look, it just doesn't matter that much. What do you guys think we should do? You know, sure, we can do that. I don't know for sure that's right, but, you know, it's okay. I think the, uh, uh, You know, one of the things that I certainly find is in doing language design and doing sort of strategy for the company, you have to make a lot of decisions every day, actually. And some of those decisions, particularly in language design, have this feature that they're with you forever. You know, you design the language this way, you know, the 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 version, the first version of Orphan language from thirty-five years ago, you can still, you know, the things that were written in it will still run today. So that means you, we didn't get to make too many mistakes back then, because we would have been kind of skewered in being able to have this compatibility over that period of time. It's very rare that people have succeeded in having that level of compatibility, but but we have, and so that's a kind of a a, a particularly exacting form of make the decision, move on, and don't get it wrong, so to speak. And I, you know what I have found in terms of uh, one of the things I tend to do in in Figuring out things like that is I I'm very much of a think in public kind of person. As in, you know, I will not, there's some people who will say, okay, you know, I'm I gotta go and silently, secretly, you know, think my great thoughts about what we should do, and then I'll come back and announce it to you, so to speak. My approach tends to be: I'm just there in some meeting with people and we're talking about it. And people are kind of expecting me to make some decision or something, and we're working it through and so on. It's just like, okay, it's going to happen right there. It's not going to be a hidden state kind of thing. It's going to be like, Mm. okay, let's decide we're doing this. Fine, let's move on. Next item in the agenda, that thing, so to speak. And actually, one of the things I've done over the last four or five years now is we've live streamed many of our internal software design meetings, thousands Mm. of hours of them actually now, where... It's it's sort of an interesting process because I, I thought people would find it interesting. I'm kind of amused that I don't think anybody else has had sort of the the craziness or nerve to do this um, of of actually you know live streaming these kinds of internal meetings. Um, I think it's interesting because I think just the things we're doing are intellectually interesting. It's great that we get a bunch of uh, you know our enthusiastic users and other people who kind of uh log in to the live stream and make comments and suggestions and so on. And feels like it also is kind of nice that there are people who looks like people care about what we're doing. And that's always a encouraging thing to see in real time, so to speak. Sure. Um but uh you know that that's a so in terms of sort of making decisions, that's that's uh, you know that that's a I actually get to make them in public, so to speak, and um uh and get to sort of say get to have people tell me you know, in my team and so on. That's a really stupid thing. You you know, we can't do that. And and mm. then we'll sort of try and work it out and and maybe I'll say, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, I made a mistake there, or whatever else it is. But I, I think get it, for yeah.
0: So, sorry, Stephen. I get with for like smaller, quicker decisions that you make around software where there's generally a reversible decision that you make that definitely speed matters. I wonder how you make decisions when it comes to irreversible decisions. Maybe it's acquiring a company.
1: Yeah, our software design is not reversible. By the time you're trying to maintain compatibility over three and a half decades, you don't get to reverse things. So you kind of have to, it is actually fairly exacting in that regard. Um, But yeah, when you're asking about sort of bigger decisions, do this project or or do a different project, things like that.
0: Yeah, Um, what are the questions you ask or the frameworks you use?
1: You know, the number of large projects, really large projects I've done in my life is probably, you know, I could probably count on fingers of two hands, so to speak. So it's, you know, each one has a different story. But uh, first thing is that, and perhaps it's irrational, I'm a bit of an optimist. And so any project, even though it's, many people would say it's dauntingly difficult and absolutely huge, I'm like, yeah, we'll just dive in and do this. And I'm not... Seriously thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to cost ten million dollars and it's going to take X amount of time. It's like we can do this project. Let's just do it. Type mm. thing tends to be the the approach. Now, you know what I tend to do is there are a bunch of projects I've been gestating for many years. Things where I pay attention to that field. I say I'm really interested in doing this sometime, and I kind of collect information. I talk to people. I get, I meet people. I find out who I might, you know, pull in to be involved in the project, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, uh, you know, but I don't actually do it. I just am accumulating documents. I'm, you know, accumulating expertise and so on. And then sometimes there's a, a moment when it's like, okay, I can actually do this now. And uh, and then I, I usually and i'll usually put together some kind of sort of exploratory team and i'll start doing some things with them and sort of see how it goes and then it will kind of spin up and then at some point once i've got some sort of basics basic idea of of tire kicking that's been done then yeah. it's really like okay let's define what this project really is and uh, you know start the engines and really really go seriously for it and i find that you know both this gestation period of kind of understanding the context of what one's thinking about, and then this kind of tire-kicking period of, okay, let's do the obvious things. Let's just kind of see what this, you know, scope it out. And then that's the moment when I get to really architect, what is this project going to be? And, And then usually that architecture ends up being pretty much what the project is. And sometimes, you know, like I wrote a big book in the 1990s, took me a decade and it kind of, you know, I wrote the table of contents and then I spent a decade filling out that table of contents, basically. And, you know, it was kind of like once, once I have the architecture in mind, usually I'm, I'm building, you know, I'm building to that architecture, so to speak. Although there are times when there's sort of mid-course corrections, particularly within that architecture of, well, that didn't work so well. Let's, let's you know, that, that we're blocked in that direction. Let's move in this direction instead. I would mm. say that that's the minority case, though. I mean, I would say most of the time it's kind of like once I've got the framework set up, then it's like figure out the big architecture and just go for it and uh, and make the thing happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people struggle with, in physics, people that study physics seems to be the best at this, which is thinking in first principles. And maybe this is just the way you think by design. But that, that was a question that I wanted to ask you around how do you break down the logics of what makes... A decision the most logical, right? Because I think people have a difficult time. And some people say you ask why three or four times, and that allows you to kind of go deeper into the question. But most people don't think in first principles.
1: Yeah. Well, I like to do that.
0: I mean,
1: even at the level of figuring out how the universe is put together from first principles. So that's kind of about as far down as you get. But, but, uh, you know, the thing is, I think a lot of times there's sort of a psychology that. First of all, you're a little bit too timid to say, I can really understand this. And I suppose my life experience, I've been fortunate enough, I suppose, to have a life experience where I have really been able to actually understand things. Mm. And whenever I'm kind of dancing and not quite diving deep to really understand down to the bedrock, I kind of know, hey, wait a minute, I'm not doing it right. Mm. And But I know for other people, it's kind of like, oh, you can't ask that question. That's too foundational a question. That's too difficult type thing. You know, I, th- they feel, or they feel, another thing that quite often happens is, you know, I have absolutely no shame in, you know, in some meeting or something where somebody brings something up where I think I, probably I should know about that. I probably should have learned about that, you know, 40 years ago or something. But it's like, but I don't remember. I don't know. or I never learned it. And I'm just saying, I don't understand that. I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, explain it to me. And I have no, you know, that doesn't, for me, that is in no way kind of a, uh, you know, there's sort of the, the ego thing that happens where somebody will say, oh, yeah, let me explain it to you, blah, 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 very technical stuff. And the person they're explaining it to is like, wait a minute, I should understand this. I'm, you know, I should be smart enough to understand this. Right. My point of view, which may be kind of outrageous and arrogant or something is, look, you know, if I don't understand it, it's not my problem. It's the problem of the person who explained it to me, because I can understand sort of anything, I think. That's the self-image, so to speak. Mm. And therefore, if I don't understand it, wait a minute, slow down, explain this to me again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a really helpful dynamic, because I think that, you know, but you have to be fairly confident to be prepared to do that. Because it's sure. like somebody will say, "Wait a minute! You mean you don't know about that?" And it's like, "Yeah, I don't know about that. Explain it to me," rather than kind of, "Oh, help! You know, I feel I feel embarrassed that I don't know about that." You yeah, know, I, I suppose that that, term, and it really helps. You know, the more you know, the easier it's, it is to learn new things. And you know, for me, you know, I know a certain amount about a pretty wide range of things, and so that means that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm usually not in a situation where I'm like, uh, I have no anchor for my sort of thinking about the thing. You know, somebody comes in and they say, it's kind of funny sometimes because I'll be in these situations where there's a room full of people with very different expertise and I'll kind of go around and talk to each of them or whatever. And, you know, sometimes there's terminology which is completely ambiguous between two different fields and I have no idea what field the person I'm talking to (laughs) is in. It's kind of always funny because you know it's kind of like like I'll just ask or or I'll just wait a little bit until there's another word that gives me the tip that you know they're talking about Apple the company not Apple the fruit type thing, uh, right? Or some um, some different different thing like that. But it, it's it's found, I found that um, uh, again my my real most important principle is sort of it's possible for me to understand stuff. You know, in some cases it's like. rare cases, it's like I sort of can't be bothered. It's like, okay, you know, it's close enough. It seems roughly right. Just go that way. I don't need to understand it. But, you know, when it's an important decision, I want to understand it, you know, sort of all the way down to the bedrock. And I think that another thing that's kind of important is that one gets intuition about whether something is plausible or not. And it's uh, the thing I found is that in different domains, you know, something that's plausible in business, something that's plausible in software engineering, something that's plausible in science. They're very different ways of thinking. And you know, even something that's plausible, let's say in medicine or something, you know, is that a plausible diagnosis? Is that a plausible whatever? The way of thinking about that is very different from is that a plausible mathematical result? And the thing that I found is in every different domain that I kind of get exposed to, takes me a little while to kind of get in the groove of thinking in the way that one should in that kind of domain. And if I try and apply, like, let's say physics thinking to medicine, it won't work as such. You know, medicine is full of complicated, oh, there's always another effect. There's always another confounding factor different from physics, where in physics, things are ultimately fairly clean. There's just Mm. some physical law and here's the answer. You can work it out with math or whatever else. And so, you know, it takes me a while in any field that I kind of get to know something about. It always takes me a while to kind of get in the groove of understanding how to think about things. And that, you know, once one gets that, it's really useful because then you have intuition of, you know, is that plausible or not? You know, people will tell me, oh, I don't know, in business, you know, there's this thing, it's amazing. You know, it's a it's a sort of a get rich quick scheme or whatever. And it's like, look, I know no get rich quick scheme is going to work ever. You know, it's just you know you don't even need to. uh, It's it's um, you know certain kinds of uh, of schemes and so on. It's um, it just one has an intuition that it couldn't possibly be right. You know, you're getting something for nothing. It doesn't you know it doesn't it's not sensible. And uh, you know, having that intuition or, or knowing. That there are domains where I do not have that intuition, mm. um, you know, and where I know that I don't know, and then I won't make a decision in that area. You know, I'll try and figure out, I'll try and learn enough that I can make a decision or figure it out so that I don't have to make such a decision um, just because, you know, I know I don't have the correct intuition to do it. Yeah. But that's, I mean, I think in the case of, for example, people, you know, over, the, over time, like you know, people who are sort of uh, with certain cultural backgrounds and this and that and the other, I sort of know kind of how to think about how they think. You throw me something which is a person with a really different background or somebody with some you know complicated psychological issue or whatever. I can't tell you how they're going to think. I can't think that about that because I just don't have the experience and the intuition about that, and so I can be completely blindsided by that. But you know, I kind of know that, and so I will, you know, I'll try to make sure that I don't have to, you know, deal with that, and I can kind of disengage and, and and leave that somewhere else.
0: Yeah, knowing what you don't know, what you don't know. This is somewhat related, but there was a viral video that went out with Elon Musk talking about his improvement process, and he, he start, kind of started out with quoting that the most common mistake most smart engineers make is to optimize the thing that should never have existed in the first place. And he walks you through this like five step improvement process and he says, the first one is to question the requirement itself, which seems to be what you're doing very well. Deleting the process. Uh, if you're any, he, he, he mentions that if you're not occasionally adding back things in, you're not deleting fast enough. The third one is simplify and optimize. The fourth one is accelerate the cycle time. And then it's only the fifth one when you start automating. And he himself admits to doing it backwards, where he's always automated first without questioning the requirement itself. And now this is drilled down to his brain. Whenever he enters a domain or field or product meeting, this is kind of the things that he goes through. Uh, Is there something similar that you apply a framework on when you're solving a specific problem around product or maybe a new domain or research that you're doing?
1: Well, I mean, I think I tend to automate first because I tend to be, you know, what I've spent my life doing is building the tools to automate things. Hmm. And so that provides me a kind of framework for thinking about things. If I can convert something I'm thinking about into a piece of orphan language code, then I can see how it works. I can run it. I can play with it. You know, that for me is very, it's a very powerful set of principles. I mean, in You know, uh, when you think about something like logic, you say, can you make something sort of into logic? Logic is this kind of thing that's sort of an overlay on human language that is kind of saying there are these kinds of patterns of thinking that make sense. For me, computational language is a huge sort of uh, expansion of that idea. It's kind of a way of formalizing things one thinks about sort of in such a way that they're structured and you can also get a computer to help you do them. And So for me, it's like, can I turn it into computational language code? That's a very good structuring mechanism for me. That's one. Another one is, can I explain it? Can I write an explanation? Can mm. I explain it to people? Can I write an explanation? Those are very useful uh, things for me, and, and that is always a driver for me. When, when I try and learn some new area, I essentially never abstractly just say, I'm going to just learn this area for the sake of learning it. I'll have some particular objective and then I'll learn what I need to learn to get to that objective. And I'm always curious enough that I always, because I've learned that you kind of have to know the backstory of things. If you don't know the backstory, you'll get confused. And for me, that's also often the history of how something happened that way. You know, why do people think this or that? Because that's something you see in both science and technology a lot, is people say, everybody does it this way. You say, why does everybody do it that way? And Everybody just looks at you and says, well, everybody always does it that way. And it's like, okay, but why? and And then, in the end, the only answer to that is go back and look at the history. Why did people start to think that they should do it that way? And sometimes it's like, that well, it was really goofy because somebody just chose that completely arbitrarily and it got kind of burnt in because of the way that the technology or science developed after that. So it's very useful to be able to you know to always know both kind of what people currently believe. And the history of how they came to believe it, um, and uh, you know that's a that's a useful technique. I think also, you know, the thing you have to realize in a lot of areas is the founders of a field know how it got started. Three generations on from you know the students or the or the you know the the employees or whatever of people, by the time you're sort of three generations on, uh, people don't know how it got started, and people just say it has to be that way, and so it's kind of it's kind of bizarre that you say well wait a minute what about this foundational thing and they say but it has to be that way mm. if you went back and talked to the person who might not be around anymore but if you were able to go back and talk to the person who founded the field you say why is it that way they'll probably say to you well we're not really sure we think it you know it's probably a good idea but we're not sure really and mm. and you you know it's very different and so a very you know for me often when I'm looking at fields and so on and, and trying to understand where I can, you know, make progress, I'm often looking at those foundations, which people have said, hey, we didn't have to look at that anymore. But it's also a place where that's that's where a lot of mistakes get made, is is that which you know, things that get assumed that just turn out not to be true. And they get assumed because everybody just thinks they're true and nobody sort of feels empowered to question it and so on. And and often there's quite a lot of resistance to questioning it. I mean, it's kind of like yeah. people say, that's crazy. You can't do that. You know, everybody knows you have to do this or that. And sometimes, you know, I think this is true in business as well as in science, technology. You know, there are these kind of fashions of like everybody knows you should take your company public or something. Well, you know, you think about it and you realize, well, actually, that isn't a very good idea. So I didn't do it. And, you know. That's made my life much better, mm. um, but it's kind of like, in in, um, you know, it becomes the thing. Well, everybody does it, and you kind of feel like I should be doing it too. Now, it's also, you know, the flip side of that is sometimes there are things where kind of everybody says you should do it, you can't see why you should do it, and turns out the everybody was actually more or less right. But it takes you. I mean, for me, I kind of tend to have to figure it out for myself. But I'm also aware of the fact that things a lot of people do, sometimes they're all, it's all crazy. They're all walking off a cliff. But, you know, uh, not always the case. If a lot of people do it, maybe it makes sense. Um, And it's worth, you know, there's an extra little boost in my mind for should I really pay attention to this if lots of people are doing it? You know, I should be able to, I I guess the thing I would say about that is I should be able to give a really good argument for why it's not a good idea for me. That is, or why it's not a good idea for everybody, perhaps. But in other words, rather than just saying, I'm just not going to do it because I don't do what other people do. It's got to be, you know I know why I'm not doing this, so to speak.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting perspective because I'm sure you're familiar with the Lindy effect where ideas that have been around longer are more likely to be around for the future. So it could be I don't know, the ideas of religion, or it could be certain books, you know, it's better to read books that have been around for a hundred years versus the latest New York Times bestseller and so forth. And it's an interesting perspective that you're bringing because it's almost the opposite, right? You should almost question the ones that have been around longer because generations that have lived before us, let's say the Bible have, are not, there's people aren't around today to even question them.
1: Right. Well, but you know, one thing that also happens is by the time things are around for a long time, they develop a cultural significance that makes them interesting and makes them a an anchor point for even talking about other kinds of things. So it would be, you know, I I do tend to believe that the things that, you know, things that have been around a long time in our, our civilization is basically about the things that have been around in our civilization. Mm. So things that have been around a long time in our civilization. Have a certain outsize importance because they are the anchors for things that come later. Now it's a different thing if you're trying to do science, for example, and there are things it is not the case that something may have been around for a long time, it may have an importance in referring to things. It's like you can now describe your theory in terms of this thing that people have known about for 200 years because they've known about it for 200 years. That doesn't mean that there isn't something different you can build, but it also doesn't mean that you should throw away the thing that's been there for 200 years, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I tend to think that the, um, I mean, a lot of the thing that's sort of ironic, I mean, you mentioned religion, for example, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting that a lot of the foundational stuff we're doing in science now, the questions that we are now starting to be able to answer are ones that were asked back a thousand years ago or more by theologians when theology was kind of the big intellectual activity. And they really haven't been asked by scientists because science didn't have much to say about those kinds of things, and it's sort of interesting to me that the things that did survive for a long time in let's say theology and so on are things where, yeah, it's actually kind of interesting it wasn't it didn't fit with what we knew for the last particularly three hundred years because that was off in a different direction. But it's not the case that you know just because it's old, we should throw it away in fact, mm. kind of to the to the contrary. I think the thing that happens though is that there are these uh, kind of not every assumption that got made is necessarily right doesn't mean all of them are wrong but it means you should you know you should assess those assumptions as you would assess assumptions at any time the fact that they're older doesn't mean you should necessarily you know, you should. You can use them as more of an anchor for how to talk about things because more people know about them. But you shouldn't necessarily assume just because they've been around for 300 years means it's the right thing to do, so to speak. But yeah. I wouldn't say that. I, I, I'm not a believer at all. Actually, I think that the you know the great thing of our civilization is its history, and it is you know it is a a huge mistake to say no 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 we're going to figure out everything today. Uh, you know that is a uh, what we have, the, the vast majority of what our civilization sort of has to offer is what it has produced historically, so to speak. And that's sort of both the the, uh, the reference point and the sort of the the platform on which we get to do things today.
0: Yeah. I mean, especially when you think about the things that are being exposed in our modern days today, it's kind of hard to believe everything that happened in history actually happened as the way it is. But at the same time, Human brains just don't have the capacity, at least not normal brains, to go through everyday life and question these things at a deeper level. So in some ways, these concepts like the Lindy effect, it just saves us a lot of brain space so that we can operate our day to day without needing to go deeper and question every single thing. So how do you balance that knowing that you have these beliefs and around questioning things, but at the same time, you know you're a busy man, you have interviews like this, you have to run a company, you're doing research. So where where do you find that balance? Do you just decide to use frameworks to ignore some certain things?
1: Well, if I'm doing something that I really care about or that's important to me, I want to understand it foundationally. Right. And it's, you know, so that means there are things I don't do because I don't understand it. Like for example, I don't get involved in politics. I don't understand mm. politics. I don't know much about it. It's, you know, I, I, I don't think i would be good at it in any way, but I don't get involved. Because it's just like I stay away from it, because it's something I don't understand and I'm not, you know, invested the effort to understand. Not really my kind of thing. But so, so that that tends to be my approach: is try to avoid things that I, you know, if I can lead a, a fulfilled life doing things that I care about, and uh, without engaging on things where I'm forced to be in contact with things that I don't understand, it's all the better. And that's what I tried to do.
0: Yeah. Speaking of focus, I'd love to get your thoughts. You know, digging deeper into Wolfram. You know, you started that decades ago, and at this point, I, I'm not sure exactly what the right figures are. But I, from what I've seen, it's around like a nine, potentially a ten figure valuation of what you guys have built. Uh, you've decided not to go public, so you start, made certain decisions around that. But after all of these years. I'm curious to know what your relationship is with money and wealth. Like, do you see that as a tool at, yeah. at this point, or do you have aspirations to to make more because it allows you to do more things? Like, what is your balance with that, and and yeah, I that really from? Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, in you know, people will say about our company, "Boy, it should be much bigger than it is, given all the technology you have invented and all these kinds of things." I'm just not that interested in the commercial side of the company, in the sense that you know it's it's a it's a thing. It has to you know I I want something that can support the kind of tool that I'm trying to build. If you said to me, "Hey, you can have ten thousand employees," I don't want ten thousand employees. You know, it, it's it's um, some uh, for me. There's you know by the time there's enough kind of. Uh, uh, you know the machinery that you have with 10,000 employees. You know we have eight, eight, nine hundred employees, and and that's a that's a fairly decent number for me. We maybe it could be yeah. twice that size, um, but uh, you know by the time it's like let's add on, let's you know buy this company, let's add on a big tentacle here. It's like it's a tentacle that I don't care about. Why mm. am I doing this? You know the things that I really care about are the kind of strategic, intellectual types of things that we're doing. And the brawn isn't really, you know, additional brawn isn't really that relevant to that. Now, you know, it is the case that it's a complicated thing because it's, uh, you know, it's always, uh, it's, it's, it's typically good to make more money. I mean, that is, it's, uh, you know, it allows one to do more things. It's, you know, the fact that we have made enough money that, you know, when there's some project I want to do, most projects I want to do, I can just go and do them. Um, you know, sometimes I'm and on are projects where honestly, if I had so much money that I could sort of just throw it at that project and do it without thinking about it, I'd probably just, it will probably make a mess of it. It probably wouldn't be, you know, the fact that projects of a certain scale we can do, we can just, okay, we're going to do this. If it was just like, I can just throw random money at it. I don't think it would come out as well as it does when it's a little bit more controlled and, uh, and so on. I mean, I think the thing that about money that um, it's like I I've certainly thought about this question of you know how much money is it worth making so to speak. I mean, you know, I have big house, multiple houses. I have you know I can do you know the things that are that are sort of the obvious things one does with money so to speak.
0: You yeah. know,
1: I I I I do them. Um, you know, I don't have a yacht. I don't want a yacht. Um, you know, it's uh, I don't have, um, uh, you know, it's, um, I think the thing that I see quite often, and I, I always kind of, um, is the negative value of money in many situations. I mean, in other words, it's, it's worthwhile having a certain amount of money because then you can do things and not worry about it. Um, but by the time the money owns you, so to speak, or by the time you have so much money that you're always throwing it at things and, uh, and not really paying attention to what you're doing, that's bad. And it's also, you know, it also tends to be the case when when people end up with uh, uh you know, f- for me, for example, you know, I can do a bunch of things I want to do. I wouldn't mind having a bit more money to do more things, but it's kind what of What would a, that
0: be? What what's like a thing that you have unlimited spending budget for that you would you would not care about or that you would want more money for? Oh, it's just
1: you know, there are. I think we have a capacity to develop technology a bit faster than we are if we had more people doing it. And you know, if you say ten times faster, I'd say no, not going to happen. Twice mm. as fast, probably. Mm. Um, if I say, you know, I could. There are projects that I've long wanted to do where it's like, well, could I just throw people into this? No, it will be a bad idea. I mean, you know, I have a project just starting right now that we're just kind of at the tire kicking stage for, It's was just, was it even today? Yesterday, I can't remember. I had a, 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 the latest, you know, weekly meeting about it. And it's a, you know, it's a group of like, say, five people or something, and they're good people, and that's about the right number. You know, if I threw 50 people at that project, it would just flap around and be, you know, it wouldn't really, you know, at this stage, it's not ready to have 50 people thrown at it. It's still you know, in a gestational phase. But if it was sort of more money, it's kind of like, okay, we can just, you know, we'll press the button, let's get 50 people to work on this. I don't think that would help. I think that would actually be a negative in that case. I think um, in, uh, you know, another thing that's interesting is about, for example, hiring people. You know, we tend to be, you know, we hire people all over the world. We're not, um, uh, you know, we, we are, we get very high talent people from all over the world, but you know, there are places like we don't hire people in you know, San Francisco Bay Area, New York City, you know, because they're too expensive, and that's um, uh, you know, that's a constraint. Maybe that's a constraint that we shouldn't have. I don't know, but um, uh, I have to say, I've I've um, uh, you know, at different times we've not had that constraint, and it hasn't. You know, it hasn't been particularly successful to not have that constraint. Mm -hmm. So those are, you know, those are things where that's sort of a a thing that's constrained by money, so to speak. And I think, uh, in in a sense, the, um, you know, the the, the things that I tend to see with people and, and money and so on is that, let's say I'm a person who does not sort of, at some level, I don't care about money. I mean, it's not what it, you know, it's not a motivating, in and of itself, it is in no way a motivating factor. It's just like, it's useful to have a certain amount of money. It's similar to, it's useful to have a certain amount of fame, for example, because it's, it's you know, it's it means that, you know, if I send email to somebody and ask some question, they'll probably write me back. That's good. You know, being there's, if you are famous enough that uh, you're, Routinely recognized on the street—it's kind of a pain in the neck, you know. It's, it's a thing that's happened to me actually as a result of doing podcasts the last few years. Really, I'm now when I'm out and about, I get recognized, which was <laughs> usually in the past there were just these few square mile areas in the world where I would get recognized, you know, around you know particular sort of academic places and so on. But most of the time, it's like I'm just a totally anonymous yeah. character. But sure. that's actually. Uh, that's actually changed a bit recently and, um, uh, you know, it's fine. It's, it's not, it's at, at the level that it is for me. It's not, um, uh, you know, that's not problematic, so to speak. But I think these things are somehow, you know, when the, when the money kind of, um, well, first of all, when, you know, there are people whose main interest is making money, that's the thing that they find fun. It's just making the making of the money and that's fine. It's not something I'm particularly interested in. It's, uh. Uh, you know there are times when I've I've um, people are I have many friends who are in the finance business, for example, and you know people are like like back in the early '90s I thought maybe I should do some quant finance just for fun, and I was looking at it and it's like no, I would just want to do science. It's more hmm. interesting. Yeah. And then you know recently a couple of years ago I was I happened to end up for about two days doing some cryptocurrency trading, and it's like oh, actually I'm I'm reasonably good at this. But really, like, was it day trading? Uh, well, I was—I had a bunch of cryptocurrency, and I was trying to unload it in, a, in an optimal right. way. Right, and oh, interesting. I did rather well, actually. But but you know, it's it's a you know, it's kind of like watching all the depth charts and things and trying to figure out what's going to happen. And I was—I have to say—I was a little bit disappointed at myself that it wasn't that you know, it was conceptually analytical, but I wasn't sort of putting it into our software and doing a bunch of calculations, so to speak. It was more just like, I can see, oh, people are going to you know, have this or that behavior and I can see this or that thing happening and so on. But I have to say, it was an interesting moment for me. It was a kind of bizarre and ironic moment because I happened to be in the middle of writing a piece about why does the universe exist, which is about as sort of philosophical, you know, uh, conceptual as it comes. And it was like, I have a monitor at the side of my desk, and I'm writing this piece about why does the universe exist and I'm glancing over to see whether I should do a cryptocurrency trade. <laughs> that was the irony was kind of kind of a different different levels of life or something yeah. but but you know the thing that was interesting for me about that was how uninteresting I found it. I mean hmm. it's kind of like nice I you know I managed to make more money than I would have done otherwise because I did a decent job of doing the trading so to speak but it was like for me personally. I mean, it's not a comment on on a um, uh, kind of other people who find that interesting, but for me, it just didn't didn't float my boat. I mean, it's just like like it is a use of analytical skills, but for me, I really feel like I want to create something. I want to make something that I can kind of say I made this thing, and you know, certainly, it's kind of like you can. Um, uh, you know, there are people for whom it's it's really, I made this money. That's the thing I made. Yeah. That just doesn't happen to be a, a big motivating factor for me. And I think yeah. in you know, it's also the case that, you know, you can see there are certain thresholds of money that make sense, so to speak.
0: What is that, that is, threshold? Like what was the amount where you just stopped caring about money in general?
1: I mean, I always like to make a bit more money, but but you know, I think it's a, you know, there are there are X number of millions, tens of millions of dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where you know you can you can buy the biggest house you want for X number of millions of dollars or whatever. You can mm-hmm. buy the um, uh, you know you can fund a project that costs you know X number of millions of dollars or whatever. That's uh, I'm not sure I've inflation corrected my um, uh, my kind of uh, um, long ago estimates of these kinds of things, but but I think the um, uh, you know it's it's one of these things where there's certain kinds of things where you can do it and oh, I don't know, like you know, if I'm gonna travel to some random part of the world and you know fly first class to wherever, I'm not gonna think about that. that's a, that's yeah. you know it's in the noise if I'm going to um uh, if I'm going to uh, you know certain kinds of things but but then I'm not in the okay, let me make a giant donation to this thing, you know i'm not I'm not at the level where I'm saying, I'm going to throw money away. I'm going to throw millions of dollars away just to make this donation for the sake of you know, feeling good about making this donation. That's not that, because that actually, you know, it hasn't uh, in my small experience of those kinds of things, it doesn't actually float my boat. I mean, it's just not a, mm. a thing I find that interesting. And yeah. um, you know, I think that the, the thing that I tend to do is, you know I like to get projects done and those cost a certain amount of money but it isn't any project that I can manage, so to speak, involves a comparatively limited number of people. There are projects that I might do that require kind of machinery that will be very expensive. I haven't, you know, that's, again, I consider that a constraint. You know, I'm not going to start building. I'm I'm not interested in building, you know, rocket launch capability or something like this. just doesn't happen to be my personal interest. But you know, that's clearly something out of the price range of things that I can do. And it's, uh, uh, you know, I think in um, uh, some of the things, well, for our physics project, there are physics experiments that I'd like to see done, but, you know, I don't have a, you know, an orbiting space telescope. So I'm not going to get to be, a, you know, that's not going to be my personal space telescope anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, I got to work with other people to do this. It doesn't really matter. You know, i'm not going to be able to own my own space telescope so to speak um and i'm not sure i would want to because it's a big you know this is is again a thing where whenever you have something like that that um you know you kind of there's this whole responsibility that comes with it and it's a whole sort of infrastructure and a thing that's spending you know that that's uh, burning up cycles in one's life so to speak to worry about that that thing that one now has a responsibility for
0: yeah i mean at the end of the day it seems like Earning money to you is one of those things that you're not worried about. You've figured it out. It seems like it's one of those other effortless things that isn't trivial to you. But most people yeah. they struggle with making money. And I, I'd be curious to like I've, get your thoughts and breaking it down. Like what how would you if you were to use first principles on how to build wealth and think about the things that you've done, let's say strictly financially speaking. How would you how would you teach that? How would you explain that to someone? Or what are some of the common mistakes? Don't spend too
1: much money. I mean, that's the main. You know, I think the main thing is that uh, it's like uh, you know, if you can, if your desire for using money is less than your ability to make money, you're in good shape. If your desire for using money always exceeds your ability to make money, then you're going to be unhappy, and it's going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been been lucky enough that, at least for me personally, you know, my desire to spend money really is below my my capability to make money. And, and for the company, you know, for the last 35 years, I've really tried to adopt a point of view that we spend, you know, our, our main, you know, financial approach is spend less than we make. And that support. seems to have worked out okay for the last 35 years. Now that, you know, that has the difficult feature that the things where you say well we really want to do this but if we did that we would be spending more than we make so it's kind of like well just don't do that and it's not easy to not do that but typically it's kind of like uh, sometimes there are plenty of times where particularly with, with company kinds of things where oh you can just throw money at that problem and you know hire the more expensive person you know, you can get them immediately. You don't have to look further, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But actually what I found is that that usually isn't the right thing anyway. You know, you mm. get something which isn't what you wanted. Um, and I, th- I think, uh, uh, you know, th- that's, I think the other thing that happens with people is, when oh, it happens with, you know, kids who inherit money or whatever else is, you know, if you if you end up with too much money, it becomes a negative value kind of thing, it becomes something where it damages your life rather than enhancing your life, and it's it's always a thing where you see the same thing. I don't know when people are in these you know epic battles with you know uh, estates and things like that. If there wasn't any money, there'd be no epic battle. <laughs> but if <laughs> yeah. there's money, there's an epic battle, and everybody hates each other. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, you know this is these are examples of kind of the negative value of money, and you end up finding. You know, if you, if you, uh, again, if if um if you're struggling to get the money that you need to live the way you want to live, that's not a good situation to be in. If you, you know, and how do you get out of that situation? Well, you either say I'm just not going to take that approach to how I want to live, or you know I'm, or I'm going to find a way to make more money, so to speak. And in terms of sort of I don't know how one makes, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, it's funny because I see a lot of kind of bright kids, for example, they go into finance, finance is a way where you're close to the money and people make money doing that. And, uh, you know, making money doing something that's actually really interesting to you, that's the most, that's the best thing to do. And that can be challenging. And for that, you kind of have to find what is the thing That is the thing that the world values that you really care about and you really want to do, and you're able to do, can you fit those two pieces together? And often the answer isn't a thing that everybody else does too. Often it's a thing that is sort of unique to you, that for whatever reason you happen to be, you know, right place, right talents, right access, whatever, to be able to do this thing. And that becomes the thing that you do. And Then you kind of adjust your lifestyle. I mean, there are plenty of places, you know, I'm sure, you know, there are plenty of people now who are doing podcasts and supporting themselves from doing podcasts. If those people said, and I need an entourage of 25 people to help me do my podcast, then they'd be, you know, then they'd be burning money and that wouldn't be a good thing. But they can be, you know, making a living doing a podcast if that's something that they really like to do. And they've sort of invented this niche for themselves that works out, and that works out given a certain level of of uh, desire to spend money. I think you know I think that's that's always the challenge, and I you know I find this a lot with things that I do, is uh, they're things where sort of I have a certain matrix of things that I'm able to do, the things that I'm able to do given the amount of money I have, the things that I'm able to do. Given the kind of capabilities I have, given the kind of organization I built, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, given even the kinds of places where I have, you know, an audience, whatever else. So there are certain matrix of things that I can do. Yeah, it's a fairly broad matrix, and there are a lot of things which I think, oh, that will be fun to do that fit within that matrix, and those are things where I am, um, uh, you know. Where I choose to do those things, I don't choose to do those things, which would require building a whole nother matrix. I mean, I, I remember uh, years ago, I was uh, I was in one of my sort of personal productivity things. I you know set up a treadmill with a computer on the treadmill, and I figured out kind of how to do that. And I'm like, should I file a patent for this? Should I have something? You know, should I do something with this? And it's like, no, this is not something, you know, this is... I run a software company. I have capability to do things with software. You know selling an add-on to treadmills is not a thing that's part of my, <laughs> my my domain. and it's it's kind of yeah. like even though it might be um you know it, it's interesting. the things that that work with money that work without money and so on, you know here's an example of something I've been interested in doing. And it turns out you might think it's a problem with money, but it really isn't, which is you know I'm kind of interested in education, wasn't interested in that for years. But in the last probably decade, 20 years or so, I've gotten interested in that. And I particularly have been interested in kind of kids and uh, you know, how what happens to kids who don't have great access to kind of the elite things in the world, so to speak. Mm. And, you know, the it's kind of like I know a lot of very talented people, and most of them are from some socioeconomic stratum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like what you know, there's a lot of talent out there. I know there's a lot of talent. There's, you know, we're all the same species. It's, you know, there's lots of talent there. And the question is sort of how do you nurture that? And, you know, we we do these summer schools and summer camps and this and that and the other. And we, uh, uh, you know, we, we try to get sort of a, a range of, of, of kids to come to these things. But it turns out there just isn't very much connectivity between kind of the... The the kids who are sort of out in the the you know w- not with access to sort of elite kinds of things and the and the elite world so to speak. There's just not a lot of connection, and it's something where I've kind of you know I've been interested in that for a while, and I've done all kinds of experiments and so on. And it's it's one of those things where I'm not sure that it's you know I've thought about could I just throw money at this, and the answer is no. It'd just be a total waste. It yeah. will achieve nothing. Just a uh, it's um just. Kind of, and actually, it'd be worse than a waste. It will probably actually cause trouble in various ways. So, you know, it's an interesting problem because it's one where I don't know. I mean, it's it's you know, for me, it's sort of interesting. How do I figure this out? Because you know, one of the things in that case that's that's always a, a a complicated question is you know, you talk to kids who are out in I don't know different places around the country or the world or whatever. And they're like, um, uh, you say, so what do you want to do when you're grown up? And they'll tell you something that's, to me, rather modest. And it's like, well, you know, I might say, well, don't you want to be a tech entrepreneur or something? And they kind of figuratively, they kind of look at one and say, why? Why would I want to do that? You know, what's, why is that interesting? And, you know, just like somebody said to me, you know, do you want to have a morning television show? I kind of look at them and say, uh, no, you know, I'm just not interested in that. It's not something that, um, or somebody says, you know, do you want to, uh, uh, you know, go and, uh, be an astronaut flying and, you know, whatever, you know, it just doesn't happen to be something that interests me. Um, yeah. and it's, it's, um, and so the question really is always, you know, you have these things, which to me are like, oh yeah, it's really fun to kind of, you know, work out your ideas and be able to make things happen in the world. and be a tech entrepreneur or figure out a bunch of basic science or whatever else that's extremely satisfying to me but if i'm kind of you know talking to somebody where i say the talent is there they could do this but do they want to and how do you deal with do they, the do they want to question and what is the kind of uh, uh, you know and, and it feels like it's kind of almost the missionary story of you know, you can go to place X and you can say you should want to do X, Y, and Z. And I don't know that that's even the right thing to do, so to speak. It's, it's a, it's, you know, one could say it's a great life being, you know, tech entrepreneur or whatever else it is. But it's only a great life. I mean, you know, there, there are plenty of things I could imagine that I could do where, like, for example, you could say I could be running a much bigger company. I don't want that life. You know, it's not. That's that's not, uh, for me, you know, I, I know when I talk to people who run large companies and so on, often they're like, you mean you actually work on, you know, all the features of the product? You actually understand how the product works? You know, we don't do that. We're kind of seven levels up, you know, managing the managers of the managers type thing, uh, which isn't my interest.
0: I yeah. Mean, my I also wonder if, if those, that conception of correlating number of people with a big-sized company or impact is even going to be the case in the next five years. I mean, you think about different types of leverage that exist. I think the oldest form of leverage was labor. And then it kind of turned into capital when financial institutions became a thing. But it seems we're now at this cusp of new and probably more impactful leverage, which is code and media. And you know, Wolfram certainly has combined multiple toots of that. But I would imagine with AI, this correlation of number of people working for a company and the size that it can get with the different types of leverage if you apply it right isn't even going to be a thing anymore. I mean, i curious to get your thoughts on like how AI is going to change how Wolfram is run and potentially seeing even one to ten employee companies that are doing hundreds and millions of dollars, like I, I would not be surprised if we see more of that as AI becomes more and more powerful and automates a lot of the tasks. What are your thoughts on that? Look, I,
1: I've spent the last forty years trying to automate programming and kind of turning ideas into reality. That's that's kind of the meta story of all the technology I built. It's like how do you turn ideas into reality as automatically as possible? So that's kind of been our long time story you know right. the current llm you know craze and so on we've been quite involved in that it's a little extra piece to that story but the big story as far as i'm concerned is how do you how do you turn ideas into reality and the steps i think the most important step is how do you take an idea and formalize it how do you take an idea and make it something that isn't just a talking about idea, but is something where there's structure, you can actually build a solid thing. And that's what the whole story of computational language is. That's a story of how do you take an idea and turn it into something structured and formal so that you can build it as technology, so you can build up from that. And yeah, our company is, you know, the work our company does is probably the work of a five, 10,000 person company but we're a much smaller company because we automated as much as we could automate mm. and we are you know we've been kind of recursively automating things the the things we're doing today live on top of many layers of automation that we built in the past mm. so you know we're we're an example of something where lots of stuff got automated i think it's still somehow you know our company probably is complicated because we have many different markets. We have many different kinds of things we're doing and so on. And so that requires a a certain number of people. But uh, I agree that there are kind of, I mean, there are people who've done things with our technology stack where it's a a remarkably small number of people have done a remarkably large amount of stuff. And, uh, you know, one will see that continue. And I think that's, um, you know, the, the issue is always, I mean, okay, so there are a couple of things. So first thing is, the core thing of can you make the technology? The answer is you know my job has been over the last four decades make it possible to go from ideas to reality as automatically as possible, so that you're so that the the kind of the mechanics of how do you write the code and all that kind of thing it becomes kind of the the one person can do that i mean this is what i've achieved in science, for example, before nineteen eighty eight when our Mathematica product came out. The typical theoretical scientist could not compute for themselves. They were like, okay, I have to have a team, I have to delegate things, I have to get a programmer, I have to do this, that, and the other. What was achieved at that time was sort of with one's own fingers, one can type and actually compute things. One could do computation oneself. And that's immensely powerful. And the kinds of things that I've been able to discover in science are very strongly dependent on the fact that i could do the computational experiments myself didn't need to delegate to anybody i was just you know i was in control of the you know the big sophisticated industrial machine so to speak that let me do those experiments mm-hmm. that's a thing which i absolutely think extends to products certainly has for us extends to uh, to other aspects of of companies now the fact is you know there's a certain scale that's needed when it's still the case that, well, you know, it's interesting. Some things, you know, like, do you need salespeople? Well, it depends what you're selling. Some things, you know, we've had, we've had products which have no salespeople. You know, they're, they're sold direct to consumers, and there are no salespeople involved. There are other things where just the mechanics of the world means you have to have salespeople because it's just like, it's complicated. You're selling to a, a big thing, to a big organization, and there's just machinery there and that you know that's a different type of op- of automation and kind of use of ai that is really a question of you know if both parties are like okay we'll just have our ai my ai talk to your ai and that's how we'll figure out this purchase order or whatever else yeah you know but that requires kind of the whole world to adopt that kind of technology and i think that will be a bit slower to happen i think there are hmm. things where in terms of the build out Of you know how do you build the 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 original structure? I absolutely think, and that's again, it's what I spent the last most of my life kind of devoted to creating that kind of automation uh, tower, and so you know definitely a thing. But I think the um, uh, the question of whether just the pure mechanics of you know a deal of a certain size in in the world as it is with people as they are you know there have to be a certain number of people involved in those things they just there are enough little tentacles that that you know hang out and flap around that you just have to have you know people tending those things or it doesn't work very well in the world as it is today if right. if it's all kind of ai commerce so to speak it's a different story but that that doesn't look you know that's not a near term issue
0: how far is that if we're talking about agi in your in your opinion but I mean, in,
1: in, you know, at what point is most of the economic activity of the world done by AIs? Uh, you know, a lot Is that of how economic- you define
0: AGI though? Like, how would you define, how would you say, okay, we're in the era of AGI? What would that mean? What would that look like? I
1: think it's a kind of mushy thing. I think that yeah. over the course of my life, people have said, you know, as soon as computers can do this, we know we have true AI, okay, and the this checkbox. Has been checked many times in fact I, I suppose I've been personally responsible for a few of those check boxes so to speak of okay now computers can do this and people say no no that's not true AI that's just a piece of software engineering which it is but hmm. you know in a sense we're just a piece of you know bioengineering so to speak it's it's not um uh, now you know I think as a practical matter there's you know the thing that happens with AI, is um, uh, you know there's there's what can be automated and there's what do you want to automate, and the thing that is the sort of the thing that we humans sort of necessarily have to contribute is we're we're kind of we're defining the goals we're defining what it is we we kind of want to have happen because AIs and computers can do anything, you know they can you know a lot of science I've done has been about sort of exploring the computational universe. Of what can happen computationally, it's very broad. But a lot of what happens computationally is stuff that we humans just don't happen to care about. Mm. And so it's you know, this question of what do we care about? You know, we can have a computer make this amazing visual object. And then you ask, is this art? And we say, eh, no, don't really like that. And you know, to define whether it's something we care about is something for us humans to do. And so you know, if you say, "Well, when will," kind of, I think the 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 question is many questions, but I mean, in in um, you know, uh, uh, the top, so to speak, is always going to be what we humans care about. Now, there may be AIs, a whole giant society of AIs underneath that are doing all kinds of things. Maybe the AIs might, in some sense, think of themselves as on top. You know, it's like, "Oh, the humans are doing all this weird stuff, and right. we AIs are doing." You know, a gazillion times the computation that's going on in all those human brains, and uh, you know we're doing all these things, and we're exploring this computational universe of possibilities, and it's really cool. And those humans don't understand anything about what we're doing, and uh, you know, in from the uh, but so I think this question of when you know there's already a ton of economic activity. That is sort of AI to AI activity, whether it's the you know ad market on the web or whether it's lots of other kinds of things. It's just a bunch of AIs interacting with each other, and the humans are somewhere you know some sort of froth on top, so to speak, in terms of what kind of computation is getting done. And there's surely going to be more of that. I think the thing that is uh, you know we don't uh, the oh is is there no you know are humans irrelevant at this point? Well. Insofar as humans kind of care about what they do, humans will not be irrelevant because kind of what's what's going on is that the humans are defining in what direction the AIs should go, what goals should the AIs be following. And that's something that sort of by definition, the AI doesn't have an intrinsic set of goals. It's just, you know, what the humans care about having happen, so to speak. That Mm. is what, I mean, the AIs can be doing all these other things, like like nature is doing all these things where we say it's very nice that, uh, you know, there's this bizarre, you know, current in the, in the such and such ocean. But, you know, so what to us? But if you were the ocean, so to speak, you might say, it's tremendously significant to me that there's this particular current in this particular place. But it's just something that we don't, you know, we don't engage with, we don't have a reason to care
0: about. Do you ever see, you mentioned humans being at the top of directing AI what to do, do you imagine a place where we're equals?
1: Well, I mean, you know, if you're driving around in a car and you've got a GPS, I don't know who's in charge.
0: I mean, well, you, you typically- decide where you want to go, but how you want to get there is up to yeah. the AI.
1: Right. And and I mean, you know, even it could give you advice. You know, oh, you should do this. You know, you are you know, you don't want to stop for food right now, you're not, you know, you shouldn't be eating that much, you know, go further and, and go to this restaurant because that's going to fill in your uh, amount of this thing and, in, in, you know, which was measured in your metabolome or whatever else. Hmm. So, you know, I think that's the, that's the way that sort of AIs uh, insert themselves into our lives is kind of, it's the, it's the auto suggest feature, so hmm. to speak is like the AIs are telling us, well, you probably want to do this, you probably want to do that. Now, what's tricky about that is some of the you probably want to do this is kind of a global societal thing. It's like, we know that you will be healthier if you do this. We know that the typical thing people do at this point is this. And then there's the, well, what do I want to do? How do I insert my sort of specialness? And this is a complicated thing because if you've lived your life sort of without AI and you've got a whole history of this is what I did, you can say to the AI, hey, I want to do more of this stuff that I already did. If you've lived your life always within this this world of AIs where the AI is kind of learnt from, like an LLM has learnt from the aggregate of all these things we put on the web. So it's text that it's writing is kind of some sort of statistical average kind of thing about what people write. And it's not kind of off on some corner, you know, doing something very unique. So it's kind of an interesting problem that you end up with this kind of reversion to the mean for everything. And at the point where you are getting all your suggestions throughout your life that are based on the average of the average of what people do, that's a weird situation.
0: And isn't that somewhat how people, how people live today though if you think about why people are religions or why why they're in certain religions or why they go to certain schools or why they choose certain professions a lot of it is based on their parents the people around them the media they've been fed which is really just an accumulation of the average of the you know people that you're around yeah. isn't it somewhat the same thing except that it's more algorithmic yeah
1: yeah i mean it's a, it's a question of how how deeply And how microscopically you can, I don't need to think, I just follow the herd. But Mm. I agree that there are plenty of cases where people just do what they do following the herd in some way or another. And I think, you know, it becomes, I suppose the question is, what's the cost of not following the herd? And, uh, you know, I suppose in, in the case where, well, it's all automated if you follow the herd, but if you don't, it's a huge, big effort. Of course, that's true already because in in lots of segments of society, if you're like, well, I want to be the one person who's zigging when everybody else is zagging, type thing, um, you know, that can be an expensive thing to do, so to speak. Mm. And I think that's, uh, uh, in a sense, you know, for something somebody like myself who likes to do things that are sort of different from the average of the average, so to speak, it's uh, uh, you kind of have to. I suppose develop some momentum in doing that, in order to, you know, in order to have the kind of the the confidence and the oomph to go on doing it, rather than just saying, look, it's a lot easier for me to do what everybody else does. So no, you're right. I mean, it's 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 not uh, like so many things about the future and technology and its consequences. It's really not that different from the past, so to speak. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. we are stuck with our human condition as it is, and. Uh, You know, that that's that's what we keep on reverting back to.
0: Yeah, it seems it's more important than ever getting into the twenty-first century to have and develop the skill of thinking for yourself. Because that's gonna be harder than ever moving forward.
1: Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I think that the the thing where the thing you do is to learn some very tall tower of kind of machinery for how to do something, that's probably not a great idea. Because that's something where those towers of machinery are automatable. Yeah. The, you know, the thing about, well, what do we want to do? That's something which is sort of a human thing. And the more you know and the more broadly you know things, the more you're likely to be able to come up with something that is interesting to you, whatever else. I mean, I, I do think that it's a it's always a, a challenging thing. What to what extent people, you know even want to do things that are sort of away from the average so to speak because you know I think that society tends to progress is usually about people doing things that weren't the average of the average because if they just kept doing the same thing things wouldn't change now you know some people will say progress is great you know we love the fact that the future is arriving and other people will say you know what I'm happy with the way things are I don't really want to the changed future so to speak and i think that that i don't think one can say you know if one could ask the question uh, uh, you know what's better i don't think there's a you know i don't think there's a thing one can say that is better i think it is you know it depends on for me personally i like doing things that i feel like i uniquely have been able to contribute and that aren't part of the average of the average but mm. i can't claim i i would be you know, I, I wouldn't claim that that's somehow sort of fundamentally more virtuous than, you know, just going with the flow, so to speak. I think it's a it's sort of a personal choice that that's the way I like to live, and that's what's fulfilling to me, and I'm happy that I'm able to pursue that. But I wouldn't claim that that's the only possible thing one could pursue. But I think that you know, being able to look, being able to think, is super useful. And being able to just mechanically do things is going to get less useful. Being able to just know the skill of doing this thing is going to be less useful. It's going to be more useful to be able to think broadly, pull in things from lots of different domains, figure out the thing that wasn't the thing that already was happening. Those are clearly going to be valuable skills and uh, increasingly valuable skills. And I think the you know, there has been a great tendency in the past, particularly 50 years or so, to have more and more specialization in education and so on. I suspect that that's not the uh, the way that should be in the future, so to speak. It's more like learn to think. I mean, look, here's the thing about education that always drives me crazy. It's It's a, you know, people learn how to answer questions. People don't learn how to figure out what questions to ask. It's hmm. just not part of education. It's not, you know, what class teaches you what questions you know? How to think about what questions to ask. That's and but that's in a sense what we humans, when we're dealing with the AIs and so on. That's the big story: is what questions should we ask? What things should we try to do? Not let's figure out the mechanics of how to do them because that's what the AIs can do.
0: Yeah, and this is I don't know where what camp you're in, whether it's the person, the uh, pessimistic camp or the optimistic camp. But in some ways, this is kind of the scary part because at this moment. It's us humans asking the questions around what the AI should do. AI is really just a tool to facilitate what humans want done, as you mentioned. So a lot of people talk about that we shouldn't be afraid of AI, but we should be afraid of the humans that are designing the AIs today. And I'm curious to get your thoughts around that based on today's education system of not questioning things broadly. Where do you fall into this camp?
1: Yeah well look there's a lot of stuff where people are not thinking very clearly about issues about AI ethics and so on where kind of it's like look the most elementary philosophical thinking would show you that that's not the right thing um yes that's a and that's a little bit scary um you know I don't know exactly how that's going to resolve but I think it is the case that sort of having uh, uh you know there's there's a certain degree of naivete sometimes about you know what could possibly go wrong? We're doing this and this and this, and it's like well you you know if you just try thinking about it, you'll realize that that you know that's probably not going to end well. Um, and yes, that that's a that's a bit unfortunate, but I think that's I think that's a you know a minor blip in the big story. And I think this whole question of of uh, uh, sort of technology automation, it's been the main driver of progress. And it's been the main thing that's changed over the course of human history is more yeah. automation. I mean, you know, we're the same humans with the same crazy foibles as we were 3,000 years ago. With the same, you know, you go look at some Greek play or something, you'll see the same interpersonal interactions happening as you know you'd see today. It's no different. The difference is we've got computers now, we've got the internet, we've got this, we've got that. And that didn't exist in those days. And I don't think that that, you know, it doesn't really change the human condition. Now, there are things we can do that are, uh, you know, that sometimes there are terrible excesses and crazy things that happen because some, you know, some piece of technology opens up and lets people do something completely crazy with it. And, uh, you know, and that takes a while to normalize out. And hopefully it won't, you know you know, eliminate our species, I don't think it will. But, um, uh, you know, it's that's obviously the thing one worries about. Is um, uh, But I, I think we're pretty far away from that
0: that situation. Yeah. So you mentioned big story. If you're looking at 2100, 2200, you see more good things that have come from the continuous automation of our workflows, our lifestyles, than the negatives that would have happened. Okay, if you look at today... From five hundred years ago, is it good? Is it bad? I would say it's net positive. I would say the middle class lives better than the kings of even two hundred years ago.
1: Yes, but but other people would say, you know, it's a terrible godless world. For example, right, right. You know, so it's a it's a um, uh, you know. I think what what I think is true is that at any given time in history, and this is sort of part of the human condition, people are. Some people are excited about those times and about the values, the things that are thought to be important in those times. And some people are looking to the past or the future. But you know, it isn't the case that there is a uniform flow. I mean, you might say, it's better we live longer now. You know, there's, there's much less uh, you know, early life death in, in the developed world today than there was a few hundred years ago. Okay, but but you can say you know is that uh, I think that's a good thing from the point of view of today's vantage point that's a good thing, but if you're you know if you say look you know people go to heaven quicker if they die at the age of ten, you know then it doesn't look so good from the yeah. point of view of, of of today. I don't happen to think that's right. You know, to me it's like live longer, be better, um, but I think it's it's not you know th- this question about what it looks like to the to the to the sort of inhabitants of that time is complicated i mean for example you know one certainly could imagine there's a scenario where you know we have digital versions of brains and we can sort of upload all consciousness to some to some sort of digital form and then kind of the image of the future of the world is you know a box with a trillion souls playing video games for the rest of eternity that's kind of the uh and from our point of view today it's like oh my gosh that's terrible you know what a terrible outcome for for all of human history to land in this box with a trillion disembodied souls playing video games for the rest of eternity you know yeah. that's a terrible outcome but to those souls my guess is it will not feel like a terrible outcome it will feel like that is what they do and they are you know, there'll be some people who are like, this is great. There's some people like, I really was, you know, I'm really into the, uh, you know, I would have been happier living in the Middle Ages type thing because people still um, say that today, right? Absolutely, that's my point. I mean it's, yeah. it's kind of like like you know you you have a, a spectrum of, of views about how uh, what what is important. And I think it's it's um, this kind of what are your values, what things are important to you as you say, a lot of that is determined by kind of your environment, your cultural background, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and so it feels natural to you, and and that's how you choose to live your life. You know, if it was if it was a different you, so to speak, you would choose differently. But you can't. It's not right to look from the outside and say this is the right way to do it, this is the wrong way to do it, so to speak. Mm. That's that's just not a thing that I think we can have, there's no sort of mathematical right answer. This is the right way to lead life. It's something where if you're in that life, and you know, this is another thing about people, people tend to have a certain, I think, set point for sort of happiness, unhappiness. And you can have somebody where they say, "I'm, I'm really happy. I don't have any material possessions. I have no money. I have this, but I'm really happy and you can have other people who say i'm really unhappy and they're super successful and they make tons of money and they do this and that and the other and they're still unhappy mm. and it's you know these are not things that are necessarily now you can you can move that sometimes it's like i'm unhappy for this specific reason if only i could get this out of the way then i'd be happy and sometimes people are right about that i mean You know, the worst case I always see is people who say, I'm going to go off, I'm going to make a, you know, I'm going to make a bunch of money, and then I'm going to retire, and then I'm going to do the thing I really want to do. And that almost never ends well. Yeah. And uh, because people, you know, it's just by the time you've been spending 30 years doing the thing you didn't want to do, you're burnt out. Or, you know... It's, and this is why it's having the alignment between the thing you want to do and the thing that is making your life run smoothly is a really worthwhile thing. Even if that means, you know, ratcheting down some expectation that other people might've had for you about what kind of success you should have in this way or that way.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a very deep way to answer that. Um, I, my, my prediction though is, assuming natural selection applies to AI, and AI in 2,100 controls our flow of information, our, our our lifestyle, it has more of a bearing in the way we think. I would imagine it's to the AI's interest to make us perceive that AI, regardless of what we actually may believe, but it may actually allow us to believe and perceive that AI is actually good and a net positive for society, assuming that AI wants to stick around for a long run.
1: Yeah, well, right, but that's true of, I mean, you know, a lot of political organization of the world and things also has this feature that it's um, insofar as it sticks around, it's convinced people that it's a good thing, so to speak. Mm. I mean, it it is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that that which sticks around has convinced people not to switch it off, so to speak. Mm. And I I think it's, um, um, you know, I would say that in, I mean, again, this is this point about, you know, do you think AI is great or terrible? And it's it's kind of like we see that with social media today. It's like you know, social media is trying very hard to convince you that it's worth having, so to speak, and uh, uh, and then people will say, well, then it's worth having, and so we we, we like having it, so to speak. And it, it's a it's a but but it may be perfectly genuine that they that they like having it. It's not you know it, it's 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 this complicated loop where I don't think you can say from the outside this was a nefarious thing that this AI did. Because it's it's uh, uh, you know you you have to look from the outside to conclude that. But you know if you ask the question, if you look at the cycles of, of computational work that are done in the world today, I actually haven't worked this out, but it'd be easy to work out. We got eight billion brains that are have 100 billion neurons each, and each neuron is firing every few milliseconds. So that's um, we've got. Um, let's say um, 10 to the the 20th, uh, 10 to the 20, 10 to the 23 uh, kind of uh, uh, sort of computational operations from all the brains, all the human brains on the earth. Okay, how many computers do we have? We have maybe 100 billion computers. Uh, Computers are running, um, uh, they might be running, let's say, a billion operations per second. So then we're we're still, okay, so, so all the human brains in the world uh, perhaps, um you know we perhaps let's see that's ten to the um uh, uh, it's about ten to the twentieth so so maybe all the brains in the world are a thousand times doing a thousand times more computation than all the computers in the world, maybe right now that probably will change right. and I didn't now, really follow that can-
0: equation, but yes, I believe you <laughs>
1: <laughs> right but but so I mean in in um uh yeah, you know, it depends on a bunch of assumptions about how much of what's going on in the brain matters versus this and that and the other. And I, you know, that was an approximate calculation. But the <laughs> yeah. the you know the, the total sort of uh computation power of all brains and all computers is gonna be is roughly comparable today. Mm-hmm. Probably we're gonna have unless we unless we make a lot more people, we're gonna have a lot more computation power that's in computers than is in people. Mm-hmm. And so now do we then say we lost? The computers took over, they're doing most of the computation that happens in the world. I don't know, I don't think so particularly. If we compared ourselves with the natural world, the natural world is doing vastly more computation than even the computers are doing. All these molecules are computing all kinds of things. And that's that's vastly more sort of computational work. But we don't feel that bad about that. Yeah. It's a, you know, and we don't even feel that bad about the fact that the natural world, well, sometimes we do, but that the natural world is doing computation that is powerful and can do things that have consequences for us. You know, the hurricane develops somewhere in the, in the ocean and then it causes us all kinds of trouble. But lots of other computation that's happening in the natural world is just happening and it doesn't happen to be stuff that is terribly important to us. And it, it's, you know, occasionally it will kind of, you know, uh, gang up on us and make a hurricane or something. Um, but that's, you know, and, and one might see the same kind of thing with AI. That occasionally there will be something that happens where we say, "Gosh, that was a really bad thing that happened as a result of AI." Yeah. Um, and you know, it's certainly possible that you know something could happen with the Earth or you know asteroid hitting the Earth or something. I don't think that would wipe out our species, but there are things we can imagine happening. You know, a little black hole comes through our solar system, we're toast. If it hits the Earth, we're we're goners. Right? Yeah. It's not going to happen probably, but it's. Um, uh, you know, there are certainly things that could happen that are just features of nature that could have all kinds of terrible consequences for us. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, with AI, one will see the same kind of thing that there are the hurricanes that happen every so often, where we're like, oh my gosh, the AI's did this terrible thing. We've got to sort of work around it, so to speak, and evacuate that area or whatever else. Um, and then other things will happen where it's like they're just doing what they're doing, and we don't, we don't, you know, we don't care, so to speak
0: just so that I can end this on a positive note, what what are the things that you're most optimistic about for the future? Well, gosh,
1: um, I mean, from an intellectual point of view, we are figuring out, you know, we've figured out an awful lot about how the world works, how the universe is put together, and it's really lovely. It's really beautiful. It's really aesthetic. It's really kind of, uh, it's kind of like, it's remarkable that kind of these ideas you know we're finally there we're finally at the point where we can start to see how this works and we can see sort of how the universe is put together and it is something deeply aesthetic to us humans i think that's that's one thing i i like quite a bit i think that the um, you know as we see kind of uh, sort of computation computational language and so on be more prevalent it becomes a thing where again it just allows us to sort of do more things in the world. I mean, be able to, again, I, for me, it's kind of a lot is about sort of turning ideas into reality. The amount of leverage that we will have to turn ideas into reality will be ever increasing. And that makes it, you know, if you're a person who likes ideas, that's a great thing. Um, so I think, you know, those are those are really good things. I think that I would like to think that some of the dynamics of what's coming Will cause people to think more and to value thinking more. And I think that's a good thing because that's a very human activity. It's like we humans are getting to do what we humans are good at, so to speak. We're getting to do things that are really fulfilling to us humans. We're not merely being sort of cogs in a machine that is not sort of doesn't really reflect our human nature. That somehow the, the, The sort of the rise of interest in really learn to think, really think about things is something that kind of reflects very, uh, sort of in a very fulfilling way on our human nature. And that that's something that we'll increasingly see more than a human is but a cog in this machine, because the machine will be an automated machine and we won't need to have humans being cogs in the machine. Humans will be more. Doing the things that only humans can do, and figuring out what humans want, and so on, and being able to do things in this kind of way that is about broadly thinking about things, mm. and I, and I think, you know, one of the I I would tend to think that one of the things we know about human nature is that when humans are fulfilled by doing things that are really uh, kind of things that they can you know, that that they can valuably do, that are things that they do that aren't things that could be done elsewhere, that that's a pretty good feeling for humans. And that that's been a thing that has been a good feeling for humans throughout the time when the human condition has been around, so to speak. And I think that the fact that we have the potential to get more of that, to automate out more of the things where humans are but, you know, simple cogs, so to speak, that's a pretty good thing. And that's a thing. I mean, you know, in, in my life, I've had the good fortune to sort of live across a time in history where sort of this idea of computation, this idea of sort of formalizing the world computationally has gone from a thing that was just about possible to a thing that we can really do in a very serious way. And as that as things go forward, there'll be even more of that and even more kind of ability to sort of take take this idea, this formalization, and use that to take the things that we humans think about and kind of leverage them more strongly. So I would say that's, uh, I mean, I am I am intrinsically something of an optimist. So, um, you know, it's, I, I think it comes with the territory. If you do big projects, you don't get to do big projects if you're not something of an optimist, because you kind of, it's kind of like, this is way too daunting. All these, look at all these things that could go wrong. You're always looking down and you're worrying you're gonna fall off, so to speak. You have to kind of be an optimist and, uh, you know, I think I'm. I feel optimistic about, uh, well, about about lots of kinds of things. I think, and I think when people say it's uh, there's going to be kind of uh, disaster will strike, at every time in history. It's certainly in my life. There's been different kinds of disasters that people have said are going to wipe us out. Over the you know every de- couple of decades, there's a different one, and sure. you know I tend to think that uh, uh, there's that's that's not what's coming, so to speak and instead what's coming is what again it's so complicated because some of what's coming is stuff that is really good for somebody like me i'm not sure it's good for everybody i mean you know it, there was a time we talked much earlier about management and things back in the 1980s at that time the tech nerd so to speak was not was an endangered species the tech nerd was not sort of the 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 cool character in the world. Over time, that became, and you know, I was sort of a, in some sense, a tech nerd. And in time, the tech nerds became kind of winners. And that was cool. But it isn't the case that, um, um, uh, you know, and and so you ask me, do I see a bright future? The answer is a bunch of the things that I think are sort of uh, things that I resonate with look like they're growing in the future. And that's pretty nice. Um, you know, I, I, I would not like to claim that as a completely general thing, um, I think. But I, I do think that this point about the fact that kind of uh, we will see more things that are really worth humans doing and that are fulfilling to humans to do, that's something which I think is probably fairly general, that it's kind of like, you know, some people would say, I just want to do less work. And um, I don't think that is, uh, you know, in the end... I think people doing fulfilling things is going to lead people to feel better about themselves than just
0: saying, I'm gonna do less work type thing. Yep. Right. Well, that's a positive message to end on. Where can people find you online? StephenWolfman.com.
1: And you'll find uh, writings.stephenwolfman.com is the very large amount of stuff that I that I end up writing about a wide range of different topics. Yeah. And uh, you can also find me on, I do quite a lot of live streaming, and uh, that's linked from
0: studentwartham.com. Beautiful. We'll link that below. Thank you so much, Stephen.